We're lucky to be joined remotely by Dr. Marissa Betts, who's introducing the return of the UNE Cyflix events. This, it, they are coming back with the Meg. It's going to be a great event. So to hear what the Meg is all about and some of the science or maybe science fiction behind it, uh, this is Dr. Marissa Betts. I'll let her take it away. Yeah, so here we are, um, not in the studio today because we had a tornado a couple of weeks ago. It's wiped out half of our campus. So we're um, on the fly in my office today um, talking to Nick Campioni and Chris Goatley um, about the next SciFlix film uh, next week at the Belgrave Cinema and we have The Meg showing next Thursday at 6pm. Yeah, very much. Um, so Nick is with me in my office uh, slash studio today and Chris is joining us via Zoom from, where are you, Chris? I'm in Seattle. Seattle, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so Chris is joining us from Seattle. Chris is a marine biologist and ecologist um, and he studies small cryptic reef fish. Um, I also like to um, introduce Chris as Australia's most inland marine biologist. Um, uh, so, yeah, welcome and thanks for having a chat with us. Hopefully we'll be able to see you next week at the cinema. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Nick is a vertebrate paleontologist. Um, I did do some uh, stalking of you online. I checked out your website. Um, and I saw that it says that you combine traditional paleontology paleontological techniques with quantitative techniques to explore explore biology in the fossil record. Yes. Fabulous. Well, what does that mean? Uh, well, what it means is that, uh, so paleontology traditionally was very much a discovery-based field where we would go out and into uh, the field, we would find fossils, we would describe fossils, we would try to put them in some sort of evolutionary context. Um, but we've come to the point, I think, in our discipline where uh, we can do more than just describe fossils. We absolutely need that fundamental research to be done on a regular basis because we cannot do anything else without it. Yep. But we can get to the point where we can start understanding fossils on a more biological level. Uh, and there certainly has been a push over the last, I'd say, um, well, actually four decades or so to shift paleontology from that pure uh, discovery-based science to a much more interpretive uh, biological, paleobiology, if you want. And what uh, kinds you know. of um, discoveries can you make in this kind of a, a approach, with this sort of approach? How uh, has this changed things? Uh, well, it changes kind of, I guess, our ability to look at deep, deep time patterns. Mm. Um, so if we want to look at extinction factors, or try to interpret what brings about extinctions, um, we can then look at it from a much more biological perspective. Like, well, what are, you know, the diets of animals leading up to and across the extinction? Can we start inferring uh, particular climatic variables that may have been associated with uh, with these um, more biological proxies? So you start teasing out all sorts of yeah, really exactly. cool details. Yeah. But, but with the caveat that the fossil record is still the baseline data that we have. And so we cannot do anything without that traditional perspective 100%. to begin with. So that's why I like to think that my research program integrates both. Fabulous. Um, so I wanted to, because I've got people here, two people here for, that uh, are working in different disciplines. I've got a paleontologist and I've also got Chris, a marine biologist. Um, what do you guys think is the overlapping area in the Venn diagram? When we think about the Venn diagram, what's the overlapping bit between your two disciplines? 
I would say function. I'd say how animals work, probably. Um, so I've done lots of work through my PhD and into my current research using uh, looking at animal animals as machines, essentially, looking at their skeletons, looking at how their muscles work. And I've actually done paleontological work. So looking at how modern fish work, looking at loads of different fishes, trying to look at how different bones let fish do what they do today. And then from simple measurements of the bones of modern fish predicting what they can do, we can then measure those same bones in fossils back through time. Um, we've actually done work on there are these amazing fossil beds or Lagerstätter, if you want to use the fancy words, um, from northern Italy, where which are 50 million years old, and there's basically whole reef fish assemblages, whole, you know, the entirety of a coral reef smashed into the rocks in the Alps in Italy. And they're beautiful. You can even see the colors and spots on their scales. And you can measure every single bone. So what we've managed to do is sort of reconstruct not just what fish were there, but reconstruct what those fish were doing, how they were feeding, um, and how they were swimming around on these reefs. And it's let lets us have a look at, you know, or imagine what these reefs were actually like 50 million years ago, which is way older than Megalodon even. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, the fish fossil record's pretty good, is that right? Because they have like skeletons that can be preserved pretty well. Well, because if we, if we think about, you know, what makes a fossil, you need water. And <laughs> yeah, the true. animals are in water. And yeah. It makes it for really good conditions. And hard parts. So I and guess, uh, yeah, Correct. the fish yeah. really occupy that sweet yeah. spot in the fossilization sort of process there. I just wanted to add to what was Chris was saying, because yeah. I think it's actually really fundamental. And it's that, you know, uh, biology uh, of, of living things has a lot of um, experimental components. You actually have a lot of control on what certain things mean, what certain measurements may mean uh, functionally. But in the fossil record, we don't have that knowledge because mm. obviously we can't see how those animals functioned. But we have the uh, time, we have the benefit of being able to look at how things changed over millions of years. And so I think when you integrate both of those, you really have kind of a powerful mm -hmm. um, coming together of, not, uh, of you know, experimental knowledge um, but then expand it on a temporal scale. Yeah, so with the function thing in the fossil record, how easy is it just a matter of looking at modern yeah. as a modern things as a comparison? You need to have you need to ground it somewhere. Yeah. Um, if not, you're kind of creating sort of fanciful ideas about the fossil record that may be fun to think about, but they're not really grounded in anything sort of uh, scientific. More more realistic. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So we, we, we do a lot of that sort of experimental work on modern things, trying to come up with proxies mm -hmm. for particular functional, um, functional, ecological or whatever proxies that you're looking for, and then trying to apply those to the fossil record. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Chris, are you working on fossils at the moment? You're in Seattle. What are you working on over there? I'm actually working on tiny, like you've said before, I work on these tiny little reef fish. They're, you know, a couple of centimetres long. Um, I've, I'm actually working not on fossils at all, on a collection of fish that I made from the Coral Sea, so reefs 500 kilometres off the East Australian coast that I was lucky enough to be able to go to just before COVID happened. Uh, and I've been over here for four months on a Fulbright, which is a, a sort of Australia, well, it's a, an American and worldwide sort of exchange program for researchers. It was set up with extra money that the US had left over after World War II to try and make, um, rather than spending it on weapons that they've been doing in World War, in World War II, 
they were tr they were trying to invest in collaboration and trying to get people together. So Australia has been working with the US for a really long time, sending researchers back and forth. So I've been over here for four months working with some specialists on these tiny little fish, trying to describe what they are and found that a load of the little fish that I collected out in the coral sea are actually new species. So I've been starting to name these new tiny little fish. It's remarkable that we can still be discovering new species of fish just in, you know, when you, so how easy was it to collect these things? Are they like really hidden? What's the deal? They're pretty well hidden. I have a, 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 a to collect them using a, a fairly sort of special technique that sounds ridiculous. I wrap a lump of reef in a mosquito net and then I put a tent over the top of it. And then I pump in an anesthetic and knock all the fish out inside and then spend an hour with a pair of tweezers picking up these tiny little fish. Um, yeah, that, this is one of the reasons is that coral reefs particularly, they're such complex habitats. There's so many nooks and crannies in there um that there's so many places for animals to hide and when you jump in it's so easy to get overwhelmed by all the life you see straight in front of you that it's really easy to forget that there's loads of stuff hidden inside the reef itself which is where we're finding a lot of the new species today yeah absolutely I, I've, I've not really done a lot of diving but i'm a mad snorkeler and um when i have you know snorkeled on reefs it's so easy to get dazzled by the big things and the colorful things and easy to forget all of the tiny little little things that are kind of building up the ecosystem in those reefs as well yeah they tend to be these little things i mean it's you can think of it from two ways there's there's sort of bottom bottom up processes and top down processes and these little things are all over the place there's you know if i if i collect sort of from a patch of reef about four square meters, which is what I aim for. So about the size of a double bed, I'll normally get 120 to 150 fish out of that area. And they're all two centimeters long. Yet with regards to the big fish, there'd only be a couple in that area. And those tiny little fish get eaten and they have really short lifespans. And they end up being really important prey for, for the, the sort of smaller medium fish, which then get eaten by the bigger and bigger fish. But then at the other end of the spectrum, you've also got the big predatory animals, the sharks and the tuna and the big predatory fish that sort of have this top down effect, keeping keeping the sort of middle sized fish in check, so to speak. So there's pressures on on both sides of the ecosystem. You've got sort of supply coming up from the bottom from these little things and then a sort of cap at the top of the big predators that are controlling the whole ecosystem. It's also, I mean, this is an interesting point maybe to bring up um, when we're talking about modern biology and also about fossils as well. All of those things that you were describing, the complexities in a in an ecosystem that we can observe, uh, maybe not necessarily, we as paleontologists, uh, um, we don't necessarily have access to data like that, you know, so it's something that we have to kind of infer, I guess, in terms of paleoecology. Yep. Um, it's a constant discussion yeah. about how how far can we extend what we know about modern mm. uh, but modern biology into the fossil record yes. at, up, up to the point where you know was it like that or was it different yeah. and so it's it's a challenge yeah for, I don't know I, I get jealous when I hear Chris talking about all of those different little aspects of his <laughs> reefs and his fish yeah. and it's also true that a lot of times we, we end up talking things about like oh dinosaur ecosystems well we're really only in 
considering the dinosaurs, but we right. know that there were so many other things. Yeah. So it's not really a true ecosystem when we talk about dinosaur ecosystem. Yes, absolutely. Actually, this is a good segue. So I wanted to talk to you about your research, but also some other things that you've um, got in the pipeline at the moment, like a new dinosaur unit. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, very exciting. Tell us about that. Uh, so we are launching in T2 uh, of next year. We're launching Australia's first dinosaur-centric unit. Uh, and this is going to be run by myself and Dr. Phil Bell. And we will be basically trying to teach about the fossil record, about paleobiology, uh, maybe even some aspects of modern biology, uh, but through the lens of the sort of the famous Mesozoic dinosaurs. So we're quite excited. And this is going to be a general interest unit. So right. anybody will be able anybody to, can take it. Can take it. I think you have to take maybe a couple of units first. Uh -huh. um, but uh, but it is going to be. When's it going to start? T2 in uh, 2022. Oh, 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 oh. So, um, that's going to be very exciting. A lot of work for us. In, yes, in absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so you're building it from scratch. So, Completely, you know, yes. all pracs and yep. lectures and everything. Yeah. Is it going to be online? It'll be entirely online. Oh, yes. fabulous. Okay, great. Any kind of practical component people have to come to, to the university for activities? Not at present. Okay. Uh, but that's something that, you know, units also have a, have a, have a tendency to, to evolve. Mm, uh, yeah, and sure. so we, as you would know, and <laughs> so it, it will like, it's possible that down, down the track, there's a, there's a possibility for that. Yeah, excellent. So. Um, cool. So let's talk about the Meg. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, so I know Nick has seen the Meg. Uh, Chris and I are yet to see it. So I'm very excited to see it next week in the cinema. Um, but we have read a synopsis. <laughs> so we're across the film. Um, and so I wanted to ask um both of you about because obviously the meg is about the megalodon the uh, enormous fossil shark um and i wanted to get your perspective as biologists and and paleobiologists on the film and the meg um the megalodon in general so it, and if it's possible for it to exist today um and sort of lurk out of the deeps the, the depths uh, like it does in the film what do you guys think do you want, do you want to have first cracker <laughs> uh yeah. Uh, <laughs> so Megalodon were undoubtedly huge, massive, probably very scary sharks. Uh, the problem is that when they evolved and when they were around, the world's oceans were quite different from how they are now. They were quite warm and friendly and there were lots of other big things in them. Um, and while we've got big whales floating around today, they are conspicuously lacking big chunks being taken out of them. So, so that is a good point. <laughs> the, the, the problem, the idea of megalodon being alive today and us um, not knowing about it is so, so low because again, they've, you know, we have essentially no fossil record of them from for at least three million years. And while there are a few things that have sort of snuck under the radar, I mean, the famous one is coelacanths that we yeah. thought were extinct for 60 million years. They're sort of very slow-moving deep-sea fish that don't need a lot of energy. Yeah. A big thumping shark needs to eat a lot of big thumping prey, and we'd be seeing things with bits missing out of them. Yeah. Uh, and, and we're not. Actually, the, the really cool thing, I know there was some, some footage recently of white sharks with big chunks being taken out of them, but what's that, what that actually turns out being is that ends up being orcas that are eating white sharks. Wow. So 
in actual fact, some of the biggest, scariest predators in our sea, in our oceans at the moment are probably big whales rather than big sharks. Yeah, because it turns out, so a lot of fish when they're swimming, a lot of fish that we know in the oceans now, the way they stay buoyant, the way they keep their depth is they have a swim bladder, which they pump up with gas. So they can change the, the size of this air bladder in their bodies to, to affect where they float in the water. Um, sharks don't have that. Sharks basically pack their livers full of oils. Mm -hmm. So they're, and you might've heard of sort of shark oils and shark liver oils and things like that. So it turns out that shark liver is a really good fatty meal if you're a hungry orca. So the few great whites that have been seen with holes out of them are generally fat and happy orcas that have been eating their livers. Fascinating. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. How, how, how much can we uh, uh, ruin about the movie? Spoiler. Spoilers. Can we spoil slight things? That's on you, man. On me? Um, All right. Yeah. So <laughs> this slight spoil, it doesn't actually ruin the movie. Uh, but the premise, because uh, I just want to build on what Chris was saying, yes. the, the premise of where they find the mm. Megalodon in the movie is that it's found uh, in a very deep sea Mm. sort of setting that hadn't been hadn't that you know we hadn't had access to and that all of a sudden it's found and so really that so if, if it's at deep sea the deep sea is of course a, a magical place where we have <laughs> very little understanding of what goes on but it is a place of very great depth very great pressures mm. and if a population of megalodon would have found itself in the deep sea it would have continued evolving over the last two three million years and I think I know where this is going. Where, would it look like we, of course, we have deep sea sharks, but they look nothing like the great white. They look very different. They have a very slow metabolism. They, you know, they barely move sometimes. Yeah. And so the Meg, I would probably question whether the Meg would still look like the Megalodon if, yeah. it, if it had found itself in that scenario. I'm thinking now about those when they do those deep sea dredges and they bring up like, what is that? Then they call it the blobfish. Yes. Right? And, so, and it looks like a blob because, you know, it's, it hasn't got the pressure of the deep sea on exactly. it anymore. You know, but imagine like a blob megalodon. It look hilarious. Yeah, that would be amazing. <laughs> that's, that's what most of the deep sea sharks look like. If you bring pull them up from the water, they're... Uh, they're I think the word flabby is generous. Yep. Uh, <laughs> That's a yeah, it would, term. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the thing yeah. is with, with, with modern sharks is, again, I think the deep, I, I had a look around and I think the deepest record of any, any shark is in the three to 4,000 meter range. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the Meg, they're talking about Mariana's trench depth down at 11,000 meters. Yeah. And the problem with that, as I've said, big thumping sharks need big thumping prey. There's nothing down there. No. There's nothing for it to eat. No. Yeah. Um, so it, yeah, it, it would have. Yeah, you really needed the branch of evolution to to do something different with the Meg in order for it to have, to be there to be found there. It may not be as scary though. No. You know, but pretty silly, I would imagine. <laughs> be a comedy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I I sort of thought it was. Um, you know, I guess the film builds on Jaws, right? Mm -hmm. So Jaws is a famous um, film that. Um, probably didn't do sharks a real great service in terms of um, understanding their roles in ecosystems. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, you can build on people's terror about Jaws and just be like, well, it's just like that, except it's massive. That's right. Um, but uh, also I think that there seems to be, well, you said it before, we're so, we know so little about our deep ocean. 
But isn't there some statistic that we know more about the surface of Mars than we do about the deep sea? You know, so maybe that you can sort of prey on people's fears about the unknown in that way. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point. Uh, again, I was just looking around and it's something like 10% of the ocean floor has even been mapped with so with modern sonar. So 90% of the ocean, they haven't even done sonar sort of monitoring of it. So we don't even know what the, the, sh the accurate shape of the ocean floor is like. Um, so yeah, we know, and, and the number of, of submersibles we have, the number of you know submarines and, and, and robots that can actually go down to even the sort of average depth of the oceans is, is really tiny. So, and particularly the depth- What's stopping us mapping the ocean floor? Um, what's, is it, think it's just funding? Just the, the size of the ocean. Oh. Yeah, you'd have to, you'd have to drive a, a, a ship a very long way back and forth over the ocean to get it super accurately done. I think it's getting done better now with these sort of autonomous glider things that can map as they go and uh, use a very, very small amount of electricity doing it. Really like, Google yeah, sends one of their vehicles to just yeah. map the entire <laughs> ocean. Right. Sure. <laughs> but yeah, the, one of the cool things is the depths they're talking about in the Meg, I, I think they sort of make up an imaginary ocean trench, but it's similar in depth to the exist to the deepest part of the ocean that we know about, which is the the Marianas Trench, which is about 11,000 meters deep. But the, the thing that's ridiculous is, what is it? The first people who went to the bottom of it, to the Challenger Deep, went in 1960. No one, no one went back until 2012. Wow. So in the 60s, two guys went down in the the Bathyscaph Trieste, I think it was, a, a little tiny sphere on the bottom of a, so that the actual, the submarine looks like a submarine with a little ball on the bottom of it. The submarine itself was just full of lead. The, the people were in this tiny little sphere on the bottom. They dropped to the bottom of the trench, dropped all the lead down there and then floated back up. Um, and yeah, they haven't, no one went back until 2012 when it, I think it was James. The Marianas Trench. Trench. What's down there? Like, what, uh, apparently, they find, what kind of uh, organisms did they find? They've seen so, Well, I don't think anyone's actually been there to do anything particularly scientific, other than to go. You know, it's. Oh, I know like they they have talked. They have seen the odd fish down there, but not in not well enough to know what they are. And mm. I seem to remember that someone saw a plastic bag. So, <laughs> yeah, un unsurprisingly. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um. With the Meg uh, and fossil sharks, um, because you've done some work on fossil sharks, Nick. Mm -hmm. What I know about sharks is that their skeletons are made pretty much entirely of cartilage, Correct. which doesn't fossilize terribly well. But the teeth are covered in enamel. Uh, enameloid. Sorry, enameloid. <laughs> um, and that helps them preserve as fossils. Yes, correct. Um, how much do we actually know about the megalodon? Um, uh, not much. Okay. So in fact, uh, <laughs> undoubtedly when people have, if you do a Google search for Megalon, you will see this massive uh, reconstruction of a pair of jaws. Yeah. And I mean, perhaps there's a, you know, the, the, the museum curate, curatorial staff sitting yeah, in the jaws. Yeah, you're standing in it and it's, yeah, you know, it's kind really of big. Yeah. Uh, we actually have no record of the jaws themselves. Oh. Uh, so we have teeth, plenty of teeth from all over the world. Uh, the jaws have never been, fought, have been found. We have found vertebrae. 
Wow. So there have been instances of vertebrae that at least have been assigned to Megalodon given how big they are. Um, but there, yeah, we know nothing about their skeleton really. And that's because it is a cartilaginous yep. skeleton that decomposes very quickly. The teeth on top of the teeth being uh, easy to fossilize because they're hard, they're continuously replacing them. That's right. And so there's like a, a constant meal of new teeth that they're dropping everywhere. And in fact, I think I have read, maybe this is not real or not, but I had read that they had found teeth of the Megadon down in some of the deepest parts of the ocean, but that's not because they were living there, but rather because there's the teeth are just spreading everywhere. Right. And the, the, the enameloid helps them be so resistant that they can, Correct. you know, survive yeah. um, these fossilization yeah. processes and be found later. Yeah, oh. that, that, that's exactly. And that's true for basically the entirety of shark, the shark fossil record. Wow. Um, that we have, of course, amazing specimens that have been found at different places around the world, but the vast majority is all teeth. How much can we know about a whole group like fossil sharks just from the teeth? Uh, surprisingly a lot, I, I would say. I, well, I, I say that biasly because you know, a major part portion of my research program is dependent on that. But the, the nice thing about teeth is that because they, they fossilize readily, um, even though it is an incomplete picture of what sharks were there, we have a almost 400 million year record, almost continuous record, or as continuous as a fossil record can be, of sharks. Mm -hmm. And so we can look at things like tooth shapes and maybe some of the biomechanical aspects, the functional nature of teeth. And because of course sharks are present today, we can we have that power to say, okay, these functional aspects correlate with, or, or sorry, these, um, these anatomical mm -hmm. uh, factors correlate with these functional or ecological um, proxies. Or, and so, and then we can extend that to the fossil record. Uh, yeah, very good. So, That's a good example of how we do that and comparing the modern day yeah. to the fossil record. Yeah. Fabulous. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask a random question and go off on a tangent. I've seen uh, a fossil shark, I guess it's a jaw or it's a set of teeth. And I think the um, fossil shark is called Helicoprile. Oh, yes. And it, the, it, is it the jaw that's a spiral? Yep, it whirls. It, it looks like a whirl. Yep. Can you explain what that's about? Nope. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I seem, I seem to remember that. So what, so what you're talking about is this like spiral structure covered in outwards pointing teeth yes. all the way around the spiral in it, isn't, aren't you? They're crazy things. I seem to remember I've also seen reconstructions where people had stuck that, that, that structure on all over the shark at different times, mm -hmm. but yes. we're now pretty, we're now pretty happy that it was hanging out to the bottom jaw, yeah. like a, like a, a, a sort of circular saw sticking out the front of its face. Yes. Yeah. And there's not much in terms of an actual like mouth. Right. It is, it is very much like a like a singular blade on the, in the middle of the jaw. Do you think it used it maybe as a like a shovel to disturb sediment? Uh, it was some kind of mm -hmm. um, like predator. It's possible. It, the, the, the funny thing about it is that the the the, the, the shape of Helicoprion's teeth would suggest they're actually not unlike. I mean, they're, they're, they're not unlike the great white. They're, they're obviously different. Yeah. But they, in terms of the overall shape, they're not that different. From, the actual teeth. Yeah. Yeah, wow. And so you have these basically very triangular teeth. Mm. In fact, the Meg has also very triangular teeth. And so generally those kind of teeth would suggest uh, cutting. Yeah, a cutting I function. see, right. Um, so yeah, it's, it's hard to know. Because if you think if it's raking the, the, the ground, you yeah. know, it would want something a bit yeah. flatter mm -hmm. to like be also shovel. like a shovel. But this is, you know, just cutting yeah. the ground. Like a pizza cutter. Yeah, that's basically <laughs> what it is, yes. 
mm-hmm. because the shark teeth come in all sorts of different morphologies, don't they? Don't they? You don't just get the triangular shaped no, ones, don't you? Yeah. That's that's the thing. You've got these sort of narrow pointed teeth that are like the the um the grey nurse sharks in the east on the east coast of Australia that are designed for like spearing fish and holding them. They're all snaggly. Yeah, snaggly teeth. Yeah, they're designed. Yeah, spiky, lots of pins designed for just poking mm-hmm. holes in a fish and making sure it doesn't get away, and then swallowing it. And then you've got things like the the white sharks and megalodon, where they had these big sort of serrated triangular teeth that uh, seem to be really well designed for for cutting big chunks off. And then the you've got all things in much thicker. Right. And relatively much thicker than the, what you see in the great white, and that probably indicates a lot more crushing ability. Oh, cool! Yeah. So <laughs> it was probably able to grab a whale and just sink through most of the body. And was it eating whales? Oh, was yeah, it? Definitely. Yeah, that was oh, why. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it must have been. Is it also like like Chris said earlier, mm-hmm. an animal that size needs a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that matter, we see that in the, in the great white today right. is that it needs to eat uh, mammals. Right. To, get, to get the, the full amount of, his, uh, of the energy. And when, and when Megalodon was around, it was whales that were occupying. Yeah, we had that a size. lot of big diversity of whales sure, during, okay. during that time. Okay, cool. And like um, Chris yeah. also, it was also nice and, nice and warm. Uh, so yeah. it was, you know, often temperature and body size are correlated. Absolutely. So. Um, I was going to ask with the teeth as well. I've heard something about the, um, the evolution of shark teeth is related to the scales on the skin. Is that correct? You know? Yeah, yeah. So the the... The scales on the skin of sharks are actually called dermal denticles. And the that means that it's literally just mean skin teeth. Um, so yeah, and sharks rough to got, touch the skin is rough. Yeah, right? yeah. They they they've historically used shark skin as as sandpaper. Seem to remember some skate skin. So skates are just mm-hmm. like stingrays, they're just flat sharks. Mm-hmm. I think. I think in in the sort of Middle Ages, they used the skate skin on the handles of samurai swords mm. to give a really good structure to hold on to. Yeah, so it's really rough, but it tends to be only rough in one direction. Yeah. So these, these are essentially tooth-like structures that are formed over the whole body of the, of the shark. So it's actually a very different sort of evolutionary origin to fish scales, apparently. Right. Um, probably. Yeah, carry yeah, sorry, on. I'll, I'll let you finish, Chris. Yeah. So, so it tends, like I said, it tends to only be rough in one direction, and that's because these scales tend to be come away from the skin a little bit and then hook back. So you've got little, like Velcro, pointing uh, pointing away yes. from the, the the direction that sharks. And what that does is it actually helps trap water on the shark's skin, so that when the shark's moving through the water the friction isn't water moving against the skin of the shark, it's water moving against water that's trapped out on the shark's body. So it actually makes them much more efficient at traveling through the water. They don't lose energy to friction. That is amazing. I seem to, I seem to remember they actually invented some, uh, some suits for Olympic swimmers and they got banned from the Olympics because they that mimicked this, this effect. Oh, and they actually got they got banned from the Olympics because they were, you know, an unfair advantage. That's amazing. Biomimicry. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, biomimicry. Yeah, Mm. that's really, really cool. Um, No, I just wanted to, to, uh, sorry for interrupting you there, Chris. Uh, I got excited because (laughs) the the funny thing, so this whole phenomenon of, you know, tooth-like things on the sides of sharks actually potentially goes back to the origin of teeth to begin with. 
and that teeth may have actually been uh, dermal sort of entities on the outsides of, of fish jaws that then got migrated into the jaw right. to be more functional in terms of a dietary purpose. And is that, I mean, that must be related to the fact that they, sh they can shed and constantly yeah. produce them because, Correct. I mean, our teeth, you get like, we get two sets, yep. you know, that's and that's that, yeah, a bit of a problem, but um, I guess it, it has a different evolutionary origin, our teeth or shark teeth? Is shark, teeth and, and I don't know. shark teeth and our teeth probably do have a slightly different origin. Uh, uh, evolutionary uh, origin, but the origin of teeth to begin with oh, may be may come to sort of a, a, a similar oh, phenomenon, and perhaps you know teeth functionally originally were very much what Chris was was, was talking about in terms of uh, making swimming more efficient, yeah. um, and then was later co-opted. And we see this in, the, in in evolution on a regular basis of things being co-opted for something else, even though they originated for an, an, for another function. That's fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, guys i think we have to wrap up that was an awesome chat thank you so much and chris i'm excited to see you next week back so in excited. armadale um fingers, so, crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed and i hope everybody can join us um, at the belgrave cinema for the movie next week 6 p.m thursday thank you very much